0: Exactly. I had a case recently. I had two cases for the same city. One case went first. They were both termination cases. The arbitrator in that case reinstated, but with nine months, no, no pay for nine months. The second one, frankly, the attorney on the second case did much better and really stressed comparative discipline. I thought I was going to lose that case. The arbitrator still didn't like what the employee did. So he gave the exact same discipline as in the first case. Yeah. So it was comparative to the first case.
1: Wow, that's a good point.
2: You're listening to OMAG All Access, a podcast about all things affecting municipalities in Oklahoma. Hosted by OMAG General Counsel, Susie Paulson.
1: Hi, Margaret. We're back. Um, I thought... After we've talked about grievance arbitration, maybe we could talk about labor negotiations and interest arbitration. Um, how many cities have you represented over the years, and/or how many do you represent now? And and um, you know, tell us a little bit about you know labor negotiations.
0: Um, I represent probably twenty cities with reference to their employment and labor. Some I represent in other things also, but. Most just reach out for specialty because um, if they don't have full-time city attorneys, a lot of the city attorneys have um, very little background in employment and labor law. So the first thing I always do is when, to me, negotiations and interest arbitration go hand in hand. So at the outset of the negotiating process, I always try to meet with the city council to see what their goals are and also what they're talking, thinking about in terms of money. To me, the worst thing you can do is make a tentative agreement at the table. You bring it to the city council or the board of trustees, and they say, are you crazy? And then you lose all credibility at the table. So I always meet first with the uh, legislative body to get a feeling of what they feel, what they're looking at. I also think it's essential to meet with the department heads. So the chief and the assistant chief of both departments, they're the individuals who have to actually work with the contract day to day. So they can tell you what's working, what isn't working, where there is a dispute of what language really means in the contract. They're also the, really the only people who can tell you what prevail, uh, what past practices exist in the department and which past practices they want to put on the table to get rid of. So to me those are the first two steps that are essential and sometimes are not really followed.
1: Yeah, um I think that's really important from the outset to to get what the governing body wants and see what their priorities are for sure. Um so what triggers the negotiation process? How do how do we get this started?
0: After the um 120 days before the last day upon which appropriations can be made. So I have some cities who work on a calendar. I have some work on a fiscal year. Take seven days off and then back up 120 days. That's the date by which the unions have to request negotiations on monetary issues. What I prefer to do, frankly, is negotiate into the contract a date certain. Therefore, people are not having to sit and count their fingers and toes to see if they actually made the deadline. It's fair to everybody. But once you get the request to bargain you have 10 days to designate who's going to be on your team and to set up the first meeting. You have to meet a minimum of twice and a minimum of 30 days has to pass before the first after the first meeting before either side can declare impasse. Most let it go on much longer.
1: Okay, and is that per the Fire Police Arbitration Act? Or? It's per the Fire
0: Police Arbitration Act, the 30 days. The two meetings were per... Uh, by a decision by the then-existing Public Employees Relations Board, PERB, which no longer exists.
1: Okay. Um, so once the negotiations start, do, do you sit as the chief negotiator usually, or does the department head and you advise? How, how do you do this?
0: Most of my cities that I do this for do not have full-time city attorneys in-house, and so therefore they usually have me as the chief negotiator My preference, and it's simply mine, is not to have the department head there because let me be the bad guy. The department head is ultimately going to have to implement whatever contract is uh, received or agreed upon. So let me be the bad guy, at least initially. Certainly you want to consult with them, as I said. I usually have the human resource director and the finance director.
1: Okay. Um, in Oklahoma City, they moved to a system where one of the council members would sit and observe, and they were strictly observers, and it was really in an effort to report back to the council, you know, who who was being impartial and fair and that, you know, things were going okay in the negotiation process. Um, do you see that in any of your cities? No. Okay. Um. So one of the keys that always comes up is, you know, bargaining and good faith. Um, people define that differently and have different ways and things that they bargain about. Um, how, how do you define bargaining and good faith? What are the keys to that?
0: What I define as bargaining and good faith is, as I said, knowing what the parameters of what I have to trade so I need, that's why it's important to meet with the council, to meet with the department heads, so that whatever I put on the table, I mean. It doesn't mean that it will get into the contract, but it's something that I mean, and that you don't then engage in what's called regressive bargaining. I put something on the table and I got mad because you didn't agree to it, so I went back to a prior position. Uh, If you're going to give yourself the scope or ability to go back to a prior position, I frequently present things as package deals. Here is our package. It's an all or nothing proposition. That way, at least as you move on down the line, you can stop taking pieces off the package, which is not, then it's not regressive. But the unions are also very careful about um, bad faith. They throw it around a lot. There is a case from years and years ago from the Sp- Oklahoma Supreme Court where they say there's a higher duty on the city to bargain in good faith. I don't know how you can split good faith. It's either good or it's not.
1: Yeah, that's true. So the expectation should be both parties are coming with their best best deal and yes. authority. Um, so Explain. To the listeners how how we get to interest arbitration and how labor negotiations you know at some point you reach an impasse and you have to invoke this interest arbitration process if
0: the the party invokes interest arbitration usually it's the union the city can but usually it's the union you then have a defined period of time to designate your interest arbitrator and the union designates this then you designate your interest arbitrator The two of them are supposed to get together to agree on the neutral. I have never once had a case where anybody agreed on the neutral. Therefore, you get a list of five arbitrators from FMCS. Unlike grievance arbitration, where normally the person invoking arbitration strikes first, in interest arbitration, the city always has to strike first. So you only get two strikes, not three. The neutral then confers with the two advocates. And that you select a date. Seven days before the date of the hearing, you must exchange your last best offer. Once you do that, it's, it's in stone. You cannot change it.
1: Okay. Um, why don't you explain to us what the last best offer is?
0: All right. As you go through negotiations, hopefully you've narrowed the field. So, for example, when you start negotiations, I might put eight items on the table. I'd like to get all eight. But I know the odds of getting eight, all eight is is very remote. So I kind of determine which are the highest priorities. I prioritize the eight with the input of the council and the department head. And hopefully as you go through negotiations, you've narrowed the field. I always stress, and I think this is something people overlook, is you should always think ahead to interest arbitration. You want to get a contract, you're bargaining in good faith, But you'll have to always look ahead. Are we going to go to interest arbitration? And are we going to go to a vote of the people? So when you do your last best offer, think about, A, how it's going to strike the arbitration panel, because it's always going to be a two-to-one ruling. And then if it's against the city and the city decides to go to a vote, how are you going to frame the ballot? But more importantly also is you have to have items that the normal citizen can understand. So try to avoid highly technical issues. Yes, they're important, but there's no way the average citizen who's not involved in police or firework are going to understand it. So you have to think long range, always hoping to get a contract, but understanding that you might not.
1: Okay. Um, and going to a vote of the people is an option in the Fire and Police Arbitration Act. Um, only for the city. For the city. Um, I know it doesn't get invoked very often um, because, you know, usually an agreement's reached and you just don't know what the vote, you know, what the citizens are going to do. Have you had any cases that actually went to a vote and how did that turn out?
0: We do. um, And the last one was rather interesting. Remember that the state statutes on elections control municipal elections now. And so you always have to bear in mind You have to be able to get to a vote of the people before June 30th or December 31st, depending on if you're a calendar or fiscal year. If there is no way you can get to a vote of the people prior to the end of your fiscal year, the vote's invalid. So sometimes, as we say, the union can win, but then they lose because if you can't get to a vote of the people, there's not a valid contract. So another thing to always keep in mind, and I keep a running calendar, I give, particularly where we have a new bargaining unit where the elected officials have never had to deal with them, I always give them a a calendar. Here are the time parameters. And it's very, very set forth in the statute. You go, last best offer, then there's the days to complete the um, actual hearing, there's a date to submit the the briefs, there's a time frame for the arbitrator's to select the, the last best offer. And remember, the last best offer is a, all or nothing. You cannot cherry pick. I like this part of the union's offer. I like this part of the city. The panel must select in total one or the other.
1: Okay. So it's, it's either the union's contract or the city's contract. Correct. Okay.
2: OMAG All Access would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. For your time, we would like to offer you the chance to win a pair of OMAG All Access Bluetooth headphones. To enter, all you have to do is head to www.omag.org forward slash all access and click on the corresponding image at the top of the screen. The password for each episode will change, so make sure you are always up to date on the newest episode of OMAG All Access by subscribing with your favorite podcast app. The password for this episode is labor. Follow the directions on the giveaway page and you will be entered. Good luck. So in the
1: Fire and Police Arbitration Act, when you reach the point of, of going to arbitration, they set out some factors that have to be considered or that should be considered in the arbitration. Um, some of them are harder to prove than others or, or to develop evidence on um you know tell tell us your philosophy on these five factors and how do you go about proving them do you have expert witnesses
0: i totally ignore factor number one factor number one is you're supposed to compare a firefighter to a bricklayer or a stonemason or a united auto worker i've not had the fop ever present factor one the iaff used to present factor one uh, they had a gentleman named Cagle who used to do the um, presentation. He's retired. The last two interest arbitrations I had, they had somebody from New Mexico to do it. And frankly, the last one, the the neutral arbitrator said he wasn't interested in hearing any of that testimony. So basically, to me, factors two, three, and four are the key factors. Two and three are the comparison of whatever union you're dealing with. With the same types of union in their standard metropolitan st- statistical area, it's hard to say, or uh, also s- uh, cities of similar size and composition in the in the state of Oklahoma, or in larger cities like Oklahoma City, you expanded to other states because there's no other comparable cities. So those two factors are very very important. The union stressed them enormously, and they will have large spreadsheets excel spreadsheets going over the comparisons i also do it i don't like putting in a contract the universe of cities you're going to use because cities change over time normally you look at five what we call five up and five down let's look at five cities above in populations five cities down but also factor in for example let's take city of altus it has an air force base that is not tax generating or the city of Bethany, where they have the hospital and the university that are not tax generating. So try to get cities that look like you.
1: Okay. That's that's a good point. And and to the point that cities change. I mean in Oklahoma City and over, you know, over time we, you know, had a, a new basketball team and you know, with all the maps, cities, you know, growing and getting more conferences and more Uh, development and so i think over time they would compare oklahoma city to different cities
0: i think you also need to look at cities whether they have a public safety tax some cities have a dedicated sales tax just for public safety other cities don't that is a big factor that i think is overlooked so when you do pick your five up five down cities make sure whether they do or do not have a public safety tax
1: Um, And so in that comparison, do you roll up benefits with that?
0: I do, but the one that is the most difficult to really do an assessment is health insurance. Because to really get to health insurance, you have to get to the nitty-gritty of the policy. And that's extremely time-consuming. So sometimes all I do is look at how much does the city contribute to the premium, either for the individual or for dependent coverage. Other things are very easy to analyze, uniform allowance, what incentive pays they have, that type of thing. Longevity. Mm
1: -hmm. I would think um, leave benefits would be hard. to.
0: Actually, they're not too bad because you get the collective bargaining agreements themselves and they say, you know, they're always very clear about how much sick leave you accrue, how much vacation you accrue, holiday hours, um, sellback. I always look also at sellback. How much do you get? Either you can sell back each year, that type of thing, because those are funds that the city has to appropriate. So then I make an argument, if you have all these sellbacks, that's less freed up money for wages.
1: Yeah. So do you have the city monetize those benefits for you?
0: I have either that or one of the um, accounting firms that specialize in municipal accounting. I have them do it. depends on the size of the city and if they have a full-time finance director.
1: Um, So do you put on... Uh, a cpa to to prove these things okay either
0: do a cpa or the finance director depending on the sophistication of the city
1: yeah um any other experts that you might get to to prove these factors or
0: i have not had to have one i've well i strike that i did have one where we had somebody whose um job was to analyze health insurance policies because the creek Only real issue was health insurance. So you look at what is actually the issue, I could say health insurance always finances.
1: Yeah, I guess it would depend on what issues you had on the table. Like, say, if it was a drug testing issue, you might have some experts in what's tested and how it's tested and and the process for that.
0: I did in the old days. Um, I have now found that the uh, FOP is absolutely amenable to drug testing. Uh, we've worked out with the State FOP Labor Council a standard drug and alcohol testing policy. We're going to have to modify that because of medical marijuana, but you don't get that blowback that you used to. Even the IAFF has become more um, open to drug testing, so I've really had almost no problems with them in, I'd say, the last six to seven years. That's that's good.
1: Um, any issues with other things like body cams or um the police bill of rights or anything
0: like police bill of rights um if you look at contracts they go two ways some bill of rights in the contract only address citizens complaints more and more departments and the unions are going with the Lexapol policies and that's so much easier
1: yeah because it's uniform
0: it's uniform everybody knows what it is we tinker around a little bit with them depending on the size of the departments but it's becoming much easier in the Bill of Rights with Lexapol because people in the in the police are much more uh, agreeable to that. Yeah. So that's really made it a lot easier. With the fire, you don't usually get Bill of Rights in the fire department contracts because they don't deal as much one-on-one with citizens.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. Um, what are some other issues? You know, it seems like every year there's certain issues that um, kind of, Pop up. There's there's issues that happen every single year, but it, you know from time to time there's a new issue. I'm assuming maybe it's COVID and the COVID vaccine at this point.
0: It was co. It is COVID and COVID vaccine. I've had uh, we've just started negotiations for fiscal year cities. Um, I've had several requests for additional sick leave time, particularly now that the Family First Coronavirus Response uh, Recovery Act has terminated and it was nothing was included in the most recent COVID package. Vaccine. Um, I have been, I don't know why, but I've been shocked at how many police and fire are refusing to be vaccinated. And you have to look at your contract. Does your contract require vaccinations now? For example, some contracts do require hepatitis vaccines or flu. Also, look at the Department of Health regulations if you have EMTs and paramedics. Do they require or will they require the COVID vaccine? But the prevailing view among those of us who do labor work for municipalities is the unions probably have an argument that mandatory vaccines is is a change in terms and conditions.
1: Yeah, and it's so new. I mean, you know, I don't know how many employers are actually requiring it. I do know some employers are giving incentives. For the vaccine?
0: We, we have some that are giving incentives. Um, when dealing with unions, again, to me that's different than the non bargaining unit employees. I think you could make an argument there that you can mandate it, uh, except as to the extent that Title VII or the ADA would give an exemption uh, because of OSHA, your duty to have a safe work environment. With unions, the prevailing view is we're going to probably have to negotiate unless there's good language in your existing contract.
1: Okay. Um, any, anything else you'd like to, to bring up or point out that would be helpful?
0: I think that the key issue in any effective negotiation is honesty. What I do after every negotiating session is I prepare a memorandum and I send it to the chief negotiator of the union saying, this is my understanding of what we discussed, what we've resolved, and what remains outstanding, and our relative positions on that. If you are in negotiations for, say, five or six months, unless you keep that documentation, you forget over time. And so it's very good to have it because then, particularly if the union tries to backtrack, you can say, look, I sent you this memo. You never got back to me. As a matter of fact, at the next negotiating session, you affirmatively said, yes, that's accurate. Also, tape record.
1: I was going to ask you about that. How do you feel about tape recording?
0: I hate to say, there are some unions I know I don't have to do it. We've been doing it for 20 years together. We trust each other. I have some cities where we have two meetings and we're done. Uh, For cities that tend to have more contentious unions, I would recommend tape recording them. And as I said, I always send a memo out later saying this, this is to confirm what we agreed on or didn't d- agree on. Let me know if you disagree. I also do the same with the council. I give briefing memos. I mark them personal and confidential. Remember that negotiations are not deemed open, um, open meetings. So you also want to be fair to make sure the council don't talk out of school. But I always give briefing memos to the council periodically to, to keep them up to date because ultimately... They're the sole entity that are going to agree to the contract on behalf of the city.
1: Yeah, and how many um, councils delegate, so to speak, some of those uh, responsibilities or communications to, say, a town administrator or a city manager?
0: None that I work with. I know that on the other side of the state, there's some different opinions on who has authority but I look at the Nottingham versus City of Yukon case. I think that is determinative, unless your charter says otherwise. And the legislative body is ultimately responsible for all fiscal management, which includes a contract, which is usually one of the most expensive uh, items because personnel service costs generally count, constitute you know, 75 or 80% of the budget. So my philosophy is the council needs to be kept advised. They can be done by me, they can be done by the city manager or the mayor, but since I don't encourage legislators to sit at the table, I do it by memo.
1: Okay, makes sense. Um, Anything else before we sign off? I don't think so. Okay, well, thanks again. I appreciate you coming and talking with me about this today.
0: I've enjoyed it.
2: We hope you can take something away from this podcast that will help your city or town. You can find more information about OMAG on our website. At www.omag.org or on our Facebook page. Thanks for listening. If you have questions or ideas for a podcast topic, please send them to allaccess at omag.org. On the next episode of OMAG All Access.
1: What if um, the supervisor sees the employee just, you know, looking completely worn out? Maybe they've started with a cough. Um, they're sweating, Um, you know, some of those typical signs of COVID-19, which could also mirror signs of many other viruses or allergies. Um, You know, should the supervisor or other employees um, be proactive about noticing those things and maybe even sending someone home if they witness that?
2: This episode is copyright OMAG 2021 under the Creative Commons 4.0 Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivatives International License. For more information, please visit creativecommons.org.